to Crag Gals, the show where we are gals talking about crags. And today I am joined by my co-host Carolyn. I am Who Macy. <laughs> I know, I'm getting there. Um, I'm Macy. I am a second year here at Penn State um, studying agriculture business management with two minors, one in international agriculture and one in horticulture. Woo! Absolute slay. Thank you, Macy. Um, this is your girl, Carolyn. I decided to let Macy do the intro today. <laughs> but yeah, I'm Carolyn DeRosa. I'm a third year film production major here at Penn State University, also minoring in English and music technology. For our spontaneous fun fact today, we have if you could time travel anywhere, when would you go and why? Um, so I think the Renaissance period would be super cool um, because it was an era of just like it was just like art explosion like yeah and they wore like big fun dresses and obviously like the whole era was just very like vibrant and pretty and very like art heavy which i enjoy so um and then (laughs) i would want like a total like western moment that's i want like i don't know like what era is that i said probably sometime in the 18 late 18 no late 1700s to like late 1800s would probably be like the yeehaw area like whenever like little house on the prairie is set in mm-hmm. that's probably where you want to go yeah maybe a little bit earlier because i think at that point they're a little bit developed or maybe even like the the gold rush era like the the part where everybody's like going on like the oregon trail and yeah. like rushing to california for the gold rush also something i forgot to mention before uh we're in our one mic studio again because it's thursday and <laughs> tomorrow we're all trying to go home for spring break and rain and snow and woo so <laughs> Bear with us, please, as always. Um, but yeah, the Yaha era would probably be then. Yeah, that that would make a lot of sense. But I just want to be able to like ride a horse through like the countryside and like I don't know, just live out out in the middle of like the the like the West. Mm-hmm. It just seems like that is fun because obviously there was a lot of like like saloons and like stuff like that. But like, why are you laughing so hard? I think too we do have like a little bit of a perception. Oh, for sure. Like. <laughs> Like, I'm not, like... No, I know, I know. Yeah. But so it's funny, because you're like, oh, no, the saloons. Macy, how often... You're not even 21 yet, girl. You can't go in a saloon. Uh, but if I could time travel... Like, like if I could time travel... Okay, I guess I'm not changing age if I time travel. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, I'll move on. Anyways, I also think the 90s would be really cool. But you're going to talk more about that. Yeah, I'd go... Um, yeah, I agree with the 90s wholeheartedly. And also, like, the Yeehaw era, I guess. I guess that's what we'll call it, the Yeehaw era. Yeah. I think that would be super cool. Or even, like, um, like in the olden days where, like, territories like Oklahoma or Texas are being formed. Like, I think that, or, like, when, when Mexico, when Texas was still part of Mexico, I feel like that'd be super cool to go back and visit, too. But also, like, the 90s, like, I was born in, in the early 2000s. So I was born November 1st, 2001 in Brooklyn, New York. And all of the video stuff that my parents had were, like, the old 90s camcorders, like, the big ones. Mm -hmm. Like, the ones that, like, when you put them up to your face, either took up, like, half of your face or, like, almost went over, like, your shoulder. Um, And, like, being able to go back and, like, see, like, just kind of, like, how different things were. Like, we we all saw those, like, anti-bullying or, like, anti-drug, like, PSAs from the 1990s where they're, like, drugs aren't swag. Don't do drugs. (laughs) (laughs) drugs aren't (laughs) you know i want to go back and see like if that was actually like the culture or if it was just kind of one of the things where adults thought it was the culture and therefore decided to like make it the culture um another area i would like to visit is any theater 
during the opening night of the Empire Strikes Strikes Back when it came out in the nineteen eight like in nineteen eighty, I've seen one like I've seen one like homemade video of people like outside the theater, like just like trying to make like a little little predictions. I want to be in the theater. I want to get to the part where Luke is fighting Darth Vader and gets his hand cut off. And I want to see everybody's reaction when when Darth Vader's like, "No, Luke, I am your father." Because <laughs> apparently, like that, like rocked everybody's f- fucking world oh, back yeah. then. That like rocked the entire nation. Um, so I want to see, I want to see that reaction. I would also go to New York Times Square at the end of, when the end of World War II was announced. Like the pictures of that just seemed absolutely wild and so fun. And I'm like, I want to go kiss a sailor. And <laughs> my mom was sorry, mom. <laughs> um, but you know, I want to go see what it's like. I want to go see what all the hype was about. I imagine that was a fun time in our history. Yeah. But yeah. And then I would also go back to 1970s Venezuela um, because that's where that's like the era that my mom grew up in, and she always talks like really positively about it. Um, so yeah, I want to go visit and see what it was like. Since you. <laughs> Since you mentioned that in the theater where, yeah, when everybody's like, what? Like, I would want to see that, too. I Yeah. I'm not even, like, that into it, but, like, yeah, I would want to see that. My mom also used those, like, camcorders, but, like, like you know, the one where you hold up like this, but um to your eye. Mm-hmm. But she would take a video of us, like, every Christmas sitting at the top of the stairs mm-hmm. and, like, that's just such a core memory. I don't know. Like... <laughs> And obviously those are from the 90s and like seeing pictures of like my parents from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just so cool. I don't know. No, I definitely I definitely agree. Like seeing my parents like pictures from like the 90s because I think my parents went to Venezuela together in the 90s as well. And like seeing those pictures, it's like a whole new world. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember there's a core memory that I have. I remember the the, JV, the JVC camcorder that we had had these big like cassette tapes I have them in my room I'll show it to you when oh you come gosh. over yeah. but they have these cassette tapes that like would play the video and I remember like I remember taking one cassette tape and putting it in the camcorder and I remember just watching Happy Feet like the <laughs> night before and there was a part where there was like a Spanish song and I was like I'm going to dance to the song and send it like mail the cassette tape to my family in Venezuela I don't remember sending it. I don't think I ever sent it, but it's somewhere in one of those little cassette tapes nice. of just me dancing to, like, to Happy Feet, and I'm, like, nine years old. You have to watch all of them now. I do. Like, a lot... Of, I haven't been able... I haven't watched those because um, we had an old VS, uh, VHS tape that you could put the cassette tapes in, and then it would play on the TV in, like, a 16 by, by 3 aspect ratio. It broke. Oh. So I haven't watched them in, like, 10 years. Yeah. hmm Anyways, on to our climbing news. So, Macy, take take it away. Okay, so today we're going to be going over an article titled how Ukrainian climbers traded mountains for war. So this is an article found. A really good title. It is a very good title. Um, this is an article found on climbing.com, where we usually get our sources from or our articles from. Um, but this is very interesting. So I'm just going to kind of start from the beginning and take you guys through this article a bit. Ukraine kind of secured its place in mountaineering about a year ago, really, um, with Annapurna's Annapurna 3's Southeast Ridge. Um, So this was climbed by a few Ukrainian um, climbers, including Mikhail Fomin, Nikita Balabanov, 
and Vyacheslav Polisko. Polisko. Okay. Polisko. Um, so it took them about two weeks, tenuous snow. They ran out of food. They endured negative 31 degrees. Absolutely. Fahrenheit or Celsius? Fahrenheit. Okay. Which, I mean, still absolutely insane. Um, 40 mile per hour winds. Um, they basically crawled up the, the summit on their hands and knees. Um, so absolutely crazy. Um, but this article, after this sort uh, intro here, like kind of informing us about Ukraine and the guy, Misha, that takes us and the reporter through the rest of the article, we get stories of like several people uh, um, that have used their climbing skills to benefit the war. So basically the um, Ukraine alpinists and Misha put aside their dreams of high ascents um, to help their country during war, which is very admirable. Um, the climbers became a network during the war, and that's kind of like a reoccurring theme with all of these um, climbers that we hear about. Yeah, like I find it very interesting because it kind of, it kind of almost reminded me of like at the like the, definitely the beginning of the compar- of the pandemic is nothing comparable to this, but it kind of reminded me of like how like in the beginning of the pandemic, like you would see people like oftentimes like trying, especially like in in China, especially where people would have like like little bartering, people would have like. Um, <clears throat> like little networks of like whatsapp groups to be able to share food and resources and medicine like when all of their apartments were locked down and it was so interesting to see how well and how efficiently and just how mobile this this um this group of ukrainian climbers came together to be able to support the efforts of the war Mm -hmm. um which is something that i mean i don't think I think in the, later in the article, they also they didn't really think it would be up to this scale of like the what the invasion would be like. But it's so interesting how they how they just kind of just pulled it together at like not even like the last and just pulled it together and did whatever they could, even though they weren't necessarily like military trained. I think a lot of them tried to sign up for the military, and because of so little resources that that the military had, they could only take people with military experience. Mm-hmm. And just seeing them being able to continue to help and not give up i don't know it's just really uh i don't know it's admirable like you said it's it's so innovative it's very inspiring and yeah yeah but this like you said earlier macy like this this story kind of covers like like the stories or just like who the reporter runs into so it's kind of more a little more story based but honestly i i i could not take my eyes off of it like it was a very interesting read so yeah Yeah. continue continue on yes it's definitely a very capturing story so really um enjoyed reading about everyone's efforts Mm -hmm. but um so to continue on um some of these climber climbers that we hear about they raised money um for those on the front lines some of them shared their knowledge of um being just being in hostile environments from climbing and basically as as we're hearing about this um the writers describing strikes and attacks that's happening all around which is very scary and um very hard for you know like us to visualize yeah so um but anyways so it the story kind of starts off with misha um misha had to flee west from his hometown uh where his where he sent his wife and kids off to safety in germany and then he had returned home um his friend alexander Kasyashenko, um, who is an alpinist. Uh, he has climbed like 7,000 meter peaks um, and 
lots of mountains of Central Asia, um, he is able to join the ter- territorial defense force. This is like the military force in which Misha is, is not able to join, unfortunately. Um, but they meet up and the friend is strongly familiar with Kiev and, and its forested outskirts as he is a sniper. So that's kind of his job is to be on the outskirts of Kiev, um, just kind kind of being on the lookout always. Um, and so this is where they ask him if his experiences as a climber helped him at all. And he says, quote, oh, they really helped, particularly with orientation. Most of the time, the Russians don't don't know where they were, um, end quote. What do you think about that? We were talking about this earlier, and I I found it so interesting how, because when this war happened, like, it was kind of, it was very, like, I don't know, it was very, like, um like very intense and very quick, but then, like, once the Ukrainians started putting up resistance, it was kind of like, oh, this is going to be way longer than everybody thought, and it was one of those things, like, it's just um, baffling to me how anybody could potentially scale out a war and then not bother to teach their soldiers any type of orientation skills. Like, obviously, the people who are in the land, who live there, are going to know the land way better than you do, you know? And obviously, like, the Russians had had kind of, like, some familiarity with the Donbass region um, from the kind of conflict and mini, mini, I guess, miniature war in 2014. But it's just crazy how, you know how useful like these climbers just like immediately came in did their skills like they had the knowledge to be able to to help out especially with the orient orienteering and like i mentioned to you earlier like they helped out with recon which is like one of the most valuable resources that you can have like in a war is like knowing where your enemies are mm-hmm. you know and it's, it's even better when they don't know where they are because you can pull off so many things. You can flank around them. You can try to convince them they're going somewhere else. I don't know how you would do that, but you could probably. Um, but just having that advantage of just like being able to know where you are in space, like in a space is very advantageous. Like I'm sure we've been at, we've been, we we both hike, like we both go camping. Like when I'm in Amapolis Rocks, I don't know where the hell I am. I'm following signs. I'm looking at trees and looking at, little blue squares on the trees like i don't know where i am like imagine like invading a country and all of a sudden like you look at your map and you're like i genuinely do not know where the fuck i am yeah that's gonna be terrifying oh, sure. but you can use that terrifyingness to your advantage um but yeah i think that's so so interesting and just mm-hmm. i don't know it's crazy like how many skills that we as climbers have that in everyday life are not too applicable but in some in something like this, you're one of the best resources. Yeah, you have like one of the best advantages. Advantages. Yeah, I I totally agree. And even with the next thing I'm about to talk about, um, Kasia carried carried out um about thirty missions in the occupied zone before the Russians pulled out in early April, um, of that year. But during one of these, he was hiding in a ditch, basically twenty yards from the Russian t- from a Russian tank. Um, and his skills from climbing helped him control his his fear. Basically, um, he says, quote, I could die right now, end quote. Um, and this is very like when you read this in the article, you're like, oh, my God. But him like bringing it back and saying like that he has felt, I mean, obviously not the same fear, but a similar fear when he's been climbing and. and you have that possibility of falling. You always have that possibility of falling. So. To know that you could also die while you're climbing is, it sounds bad to say, but a valuable um, asset in this situation where you also have the 
possibility of dying. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. prepares you. Yeah. It prepares you. Mm-hmm. So he talks about that a bit. I'm I'm you you already know that I'm very like deathly afraid of falling. Mm-hmm. And there's like there's especially like from people who I've talked to who really like lead climbing, there is this kind of like acceptance with us like, you know, I could die right now, but I think that's a risk that we take all the time. And it's something that I don't necessarily think about too much, especially like while top roping or while bouldering. Um, but especially like while top roping, like the fear has definitely subsided. Like I'm definitely way more comfortable taking risks on top rope. And I know that I could die because like it's one of those things where somebody could just simply let go and like just not be able to catch me. Right. But especially like with lead, like I'm still getting to that level. But I imagine like I listen to I personally listen to like the Jocko Willink podcast. If you don't know who Jocko Willink is, he's like a he's a United, he's a retired United States Navy SEAL um, who did a lot of did a lot of operations during the Gulf War and he talks a lot about having to maintain like that fear level and just generally like, being able to focus on the mission and like not he, he's like focus on the mission like you have to just like get through it like, you know um but I think that's also another good advantage that you have is like regularly being exposed to something that 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 requires you to kind of like, control that fear I think it's useful for any any position in life I know for me it's helped tremendously and just generally help me like maintain calm like I know I'm I'm naturally a very nervous Nelly (laughs) but like the amount of times where I've been in like almost getting into car accidents or like almost getting hit by someone or being in a potentially dangerous situation with someone who's much bigger and stronger than me like there's a second where there's like this something in your brain that just clicks and you just like start you just start thinking you know you just like there. yeah you just you're just you're just very present and you're like okay what do i gotta do right now in order to avoid this and then you kind of you know for a couple seconds after your words you're like <laughs> yeah but it's fine because you're you're fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it's that's another thing too that i think that is really positive about the sport too is that it helps you learn to maintain that fear in a very controlled environment mm-hmm. and that is in, in, in environments where things aren't controlled, it's so much better to be able to be able to control that fear and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that 100%. Um, so just to move on here then, then we get into some more of the like materialistic things, um, the things that people were able to provide to soldiers. Um, so like I said, Misha was unable to serve the territorials, but he was able to provide them with things. So he saw a request on Facebook for a Garmin 62S handheld navigator, um, which he was very, very familiar with from climbing and navigating the mountains and whatnot. Um, So the Ukrainian Air Force needed them for their MiG-29 Soviet-era fighter jets. So with his climbing network, as we talked about before with the networking, um, he was able to gather up 10 of them. um, And he was working on answering a request for a thermal camera as well, which is awesome. Um, and that's where he really realized his role is that he just knows a lot of people and he has the ability to create that network that can really support um, the people that are fighting. So he went answering requests from regulars, climbers, territorials, um, finding them things like ropes, warm clothes, stoves, drones, sleeping bags, vehicles. The list went on, honestly. Um, and he called this network Climb Army which is, I think, an amazing title. Um, and he began a movement for other social networks to come together, like doctors and firefighters. So they kind of had their own networking system as well, which is awesome. And then the next person that we talk about is um, the owner of the largest guiding service in Ukraine, um, where they send 
guided groups out daily. So he he was able to use his own network and he has a client uh, who worked for Motorola um, in Lithuania and they were able to to get them 600 plus some radios for free, which is awesome. Um, And 10 of the guides um, from this uh, company were on the front lines. Um, Others were medics. He also sourced 2,000 sleeping pads and 1,300 winter sleeping bags where 1,000 of them were given to the army and the rest were uh, in his store to be sold. Again, really awesome. Next, Commanda X Mm -hmm. or Team X um, is the biggest climbing store in Ukraine, which is not only um, like a physical meeting place for activists um, and people wanting to help during this war, but also they sold um, Russian equipment to raise funds. There was little volunteering activity in Russia. Um, and this is kind of where they had an advantage over them yeah. for sure. And so they have friends that, Oh yeah. A bit like a big part of this actually was like, or at least this section of the article was like asking the people from this team, mm-hmm. you know, how, how do you feel about like your Russian friends now? Um, which is an interesting part of it. And basically they said that they have friends they climbed with from Russia, um, but they now do not maintain those friendships because they often do help Ukraine, um, but they're silent about it. And like Ukraine is obviously like obviously a very proud nation, mm-hmm. so they they don't appreciate the like the the su- supportive unsupportiveness. Yeah. <laughs> and something too that I wanted to bring up from the article too is that a lot of I think the reason why a lot of these friends were silent that at least the Ukrainians uh, said. The Ukrainian Mountaineer said was because a lot of them had contracts from companies that also worked with the Russian military. Mm. And that also kind of brings up like something very similar that we see in the United States as well. Black Diamond is a United States military contractor. Mm. One of like the biggest like. Really? Yeah, I I believe so. I believe. Let me do a Google search real quick. (laughs) Because I remember me and Danny were talking about this. Yeah. Professional and military sales. Zero as... Zero S Z C three federal contract and grant award history. So yeah, um, so yeah, Black Diamond has contracts with the United States government and United States military, and it's like one of those things where I know personally a lot of people climbers who I've spoken to um, have like when I offer them like say like at climb the new like offering them like an ATC pilot or a uh, just like general anything made from Black Diamond. There's like oh I don't I don't buy Black Diamond things. Which really? yeah I've had that and huh. and I've also too thought about not buying some black diamond equipment now i do own one black i do own no i own two black diamond things i own the atc and i own the um alex honnold climbing harness that is those are both made by black diamond but i definitely know like in the future personally like i've definitely thought about not supporting black diamond just because of the military contracts and some of those military contracts could have been used in iraq or iran or afghanistan and it's like one of those ones where it's like "Mm, i don't know if i want to like put my money into that but um so it's really it's unfortunate that like a lot of these Russian climbers and granted like can I can I say much about them because n- no because they're in a totalitarian state mm-hmm. that has seen multi- like hundreds of thousands of people be arrested for protesting the war in Ukraine in Russia. I think it's I can understand why they're afraid to to stand out but at the same time I'm like also like dude these are your friends like your friends are dying because of an army that is that is coming for for them right and you want to maintain your contract granted i understand and i'm not i'm not here to be like you should do this you should do that because at the same time like i know i'd be worried as fuck (laughs) you know but it's one of those 
it's it's just sad where it's like do i blame the U- the the ukrainian mountaineering uh mountaineering pe- like mountaineers for not maintaining those friendships like no i i would not maintain those friendships either if if your country is actively coming at me in a war and i have to bring my family over to a different country just so they can survive and you're not saying anything about that when you get paid by by the government it's like dude who are you loyal to now granted i'm a very loyal person but still yeah. you know it's like come on like be be the bigger man you know it's it's just sad that like they had to cut these relationships and that their friends never were just silent the entire time i can understand both sides but i empathize a lot more with the ukrainians yeah and it is also important like about yourself as well so it's like mm-hmm. and your family yeah it's like what are what position will you be putting yourself in, in yeah yeah mm-hmm. but to move on from that the, the article is almost finished um at this point he he still talks to a couple more people um including andre Zaharayev, um, which is the co-founder of Euchre Holds. So when Ukraine was part of the um, Soviet Union, rock climbing was very like structured um, and geared pretty much only towards training for the mountains. Um, but 30 years of access to Western European climbing has made Ukraine a very small but very vibrant um, sport climbing scene. So Andre found himself suddenly in the front line trying to provide support and equipment to his friends, um, one of which was his business partner. Uh, so work took a pause for a little bit, but then the factory of um, Euchre Holds again resumed and employees were making money for their families, um, which was most important to him. They didn't make profit, yeah, um, but families were able to make money, which was really the most important part. Um, and then Andre took the reporter uh, to a climbing gym called Funatic, 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 and basically it was just like this, like sunlight in the middle of the dark oh, and really? and gloomy. Like mm. it was just this like amazing place mm. where uh, it's not profitable, but it's a place for people to work. It's a place for people to distress. It's a place for friends and community, and it. I, reading reading the article it was cool they were like there was music playing inside people were talking like it was bright in there like mm-hmm. all the street lights are turned out to save energy mm-hmm. um but it was light in there and like mm-hmm. it, it just seemed so like vibrant and fun in in the middle of a of a gloomy scene and we also have ukrainian sport climber um who works at hyperion um, his name is Kashnov. He, sorry, um, a team, a team in Ukraine needed to understand how to build a Tyrolean across a river, and so that's where Kashnov came in because he was able to do that um, from his climbing skills. Um, so that's just another way that that a climber has helped. He also provided um, physiotherapy sessions to wounded soldiers, and he helped a lot of people that way which is amazing. Um, we have Ryan Collins, who is an American um, who moved to the Ukraine a few few years back um, just because of the culture. He loved the culture. Um, and he started a backcountry skiing business called Snow Vigil. Um, and while he was involved, um, he also talked about like his fear aspect. Um, he says, quote, you can't just say I'm done, end yeah. quote, um, which I think is like a really, really strong point there. Yeah. And and the final person they talk about, um, he, he goes by a call name. He he wanted to um, secure his privacy, but he goes by Ajax in the article, um, which is one of P- 
Podobanov's um, students who kind of embodies that like Ukrainian spirit. Um, and he is a drone operator, which mm-hmm. obviously like greatly benefit benefits the overstretched artillery that mm-hmm. Ukraine was utilizing. He also has experience as a sports shooter and an alpinist. And, and it go- even goes into another section where it describes how he is unfazed by winter weather, which is interesting to read about. But a, a quote that comes up and that kind of also ends the article um, is, quote, it's not about nationality. It's about the way it's about way of thinking, end quote, yep. which I think is a really That's like really, re- really nice way to end the article. Mm-hmm. So any any final thoughts on it? I agree with with the quote a lot. I like, or I I agree with definitely with the with the quote where it says like you can't just say I'm done. I I can't like imagine like like ever having to use my climbing skills like in a war. But at the same time, like this is one of those things where it's like to say that you're done, you just can't. You yeah. if you say you're done, you die. You die. Like that's like the very very simplistic way of putting it. If you give up in a war that you're fighting in, like that 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 means that you basically accept death. And this is kind of kind of gonna tie into our our, our accident a little bit but it goes to show like how this sport does kind of help build like a, a mental fortitude um and it just i don't know it helps the the community is especially in ukraine has proven itself to be very resourceful very innovative very creative in how they had this massive problem which is a whole army coming after their country right and it's it's just really I don't know. It gives me hope to see that like these people, although they couldn't use their skills for military purposes, and even then, like it's like imagine being an alpinist for so long, and then all of a sudden they give you a gun, and it's like okay, go go fight Russians. But you know, even one of them in the article was like was asked if he had any hunting experience, and he was like, no, 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 I like nature, but not like shooting it. You know, that would be that would be sad. Like you know, imagine like having to like shoot at the like shoot at you know people are part of nature you know hypothetically right so it's like imagine having to shoot other things that have life you know that's that's traumatic and that's something that no one should ever be put in a position to do but instead of you know leaving instead of complaining instead of kind of you know doing these things that you know they that like they could have done they said no we're gonna stay we're gonna figure out how to help and that's what we're gonna do and they did that they did that, and I'm very, I'm very proud of of the little climbing community in Ukraine. I hope they keep doing better. But yeah, any other thoughts? I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Good. Yeah. On to our climbing accident. So. We're going to start up a little accent series. So this is accent series um, uh, of the no- of the most notorious accidents coming from a climbing.com article. Um, we encourage you to go read the article, but just remember that um, we're going in it in order. So if you scroll in a little bit too far, you might see some spoilers. But still, we wanted to start a little accident series because there hasn't been an accident on here in a while. And we wanted to keep doing that to promote risk management and stuff and just kind of tell tell interesting stories. Um, so, yeah. So the... Uh, in- the mini series that we're going to be or the the accent that we're going to be covering today is called is in Pakistan in 1977 on a mountain called um Bintha Barak Brock or also known as the Ogre. Um so um in July on July 13th 1997 two mountaineers named Doug Scott and Chris Bonington summited the 
uh, Bind the Buck, aka the Ogre, at 23, um, which is 23,901 feet. The team had already spent a month on the mountain. So basically, this is about 3,000 feet below the death zone. So they didn't necessarily need supplemental oxygen, but I imagine that area is like thin, thin as hell up there. So during their repel, um, they had to repel down the entire mountain. So during the repel, Scott slipped on ice and fell back into the wall. And he, at the same time, when he fell back into the wall, um, he broke both of his legs. Um, the article is, uh, describes it as him like penduling, pend- penduling. I don't remember the word, but just basically like that, like tumbling, like as you're falling type thing. So he it was pretty violent. So he both bo- he broke both of his legs above the ankles, um, and the two were nine thousand feet above the base camp, and a snowstorm had set in. Um, so instead instead of kind of just like you know continuing their continuing their repel they built a small camp with no tents basically like just like their sleeping bags with like their head out in the open air and um they waited out the storm so they had no food no no stoves and no down parkas either so pretty much like bare bare bones type stuff um the two continued repelling down the next day and they were joined joined by mo antoine and uh clive roland um who helped them get down the mountain uh, Scott managed to manhandle himself down several hundred feet of rope over the course of six hours um, during their next uh, repel. But wait, it gets worse. Bonington repelled off the end of two ropes of unequal length and plunged about 20 feet and broke his two ribs. Um, and repelling accidents... Um, I believe in the book that I gave Emma, I covered this a little bit more last season, but there's a book that I gave Emma, Emma called um, American Alpine Accidents um the 2010 version and a lot of them i think the majority of that book uh said that the accidents were caused by repelling Mm. and usually uneven ropes was a huge a big majority uh a a majorous factor in um it was a big factor as to why um repelling accidents happened um so he uh bonnington broke two ribs um so now they're both screwed and the team got to their temps in the high saddle region of the mountain, but they couldn't continue due to another blizzard. Um, so at this point, it had been six days since the initial accident with Scott. Um, they had no food. They were above 21,000 feet and their sleeping bags were soaked. Macy, what are you thinking? I, it, It's just like every worst case scenario. It like I Reading this article, when you were reading this article, I, I just couldn't believe that it kept getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um. So obviously I feel horrible for these climbers, but I like as as I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Like you th- you think the worst of it is done? No, it's not. Yeah, I, it's just crazy, crazy to me. It's just a series of like wildly unfortunate events. Wild, absolutely wild stuff. So um, so yeah. After the weather stopped, they continued their journey, and Bonington couldn't use one of his hands, nor could he speak. Um, and he believed that he likely developed uh, pneumonia. He couldn't, he could pretty much couldn't talk or anything, but they finally make it to base camp. Antoine arrived at the base camp the next day and they found that, uh, it gets worse. Um, the entire base camp had been abandoned. Um, and so basically the team that Antoine had, had come with feared that Antoine and Roland were dead. Um, so they went to go get help and they left them a note and they said, it says, quote, in the unlikely event of your reading this, I have gone down for help. And quote. Oh <laughs> imagine like you coming down the mountain and your friends are like, I think you're dead. I'm going to go get help. Bye. So Scott, Scott was basically crawling down this mountain at this point because they're, they're pretty much done repelling. Scott had to crawl five 
miles of, of glacier and moraine and basically all the ice and dirt wore through all four layers of clothing that Scott was wearing and rubbed his knees raw. So basically what happened is that um, Antoine decided to run ahead and catch up to the other climbers. So Scott and Boddington had to wait for another five days at base camp until they returned. Um, so Antoine reco- uh, returned with about a dozen uh, porters who then ferried Scott for three days down the glacier. And then um, basically a helicopter arrived to pick up Scott. But it crash landed. Thankfully, no one was hurt. No one was hurt. Um, Scott and the other passengers were unharmed. Uh, but Boddington, the one who couldn't move his hand and couldn't speak, had to wait another week before he could escape the mountains. And then the ogre was not climbed again for another 24 years. Absolutely insane. Um, Boddington later wrote, quote, It was certainly the most harrowing experience that either Doug or I have ever had. And yet throughout the long, drawn-out retreat, there is a sense of dis- there is never a sense of despair. This was largely due to the quality of support that we had from Moe and Clive and the fact that none of us had lost the will to survive or showed doubts that we might have secretly had. What do you think, Macy? I don't know. I feel... Just so, like, I, reading through the article, the further and further down you get, it's just, like, the more saddened and, like, I like the harrowing is, like, a really good word to describe mm-hmm. the feeling. Um, but I just can't imagine, like, just can't imagine any of it. I, I can't really imagine any of it either. And this kind of goes, like, back to what we were talking about with the Ukrainians, too, about, like, just keeping that, like, lack of fear and just generally, like, not letting that fear, like, get the best of you and just, like, just allowing, like, wanting to continuously pursue um so the climbing article later goes down to explain the lessons from the from the accident uh but really it was just one of those those series of unfortunate of of really unfortunate events other than like the unequal rope propel oh sorry Um, i didn't realize that was your foot um but um quote scott later explained how he managed to keep going for so many days despite so many obstacles and he said take it one feature at a time a nub of a rock a pinnacle get there and think about the next pick because the the to think about the whole thing was a bit mind-boggling, end quote. He tell, he says to focus on the immediate tasks at hand, and he tells us, um, instead of wasting time and energy worrying about your plight. And I think that's a really good life advice. Like, I personally struggle with maintaining short-term goals compared to long-term goals. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, I look at the big picture, and it's, like, how am I going to do that? Like, you know, it seems so overwhelming. And then... I see stuff like this and it's like, I know I would be thinking about like, the big picture like the whole time. Like, dude, we're 21,000 feet in the air. My legs are broken. Your your ribs are broken and you can't talk and or move your hand. Yeah. How the hell are we going to get down? Um, but I think their their approach of just taking it one step at a time, inch by inch, you know, mm-hmm. getting there little by little is, is very, very good life advice and just generally goes to show like how much this sport can can really help you control that like that fear mindset and such but yeah what do you what do you think of macy i obviously like uh, extremely extremely lucky that he is alive Mm -hmm. very um very glad to see that he is alive and and was able to get through all of this but also very very glad that he lived on to give us really good advice Mm -hmm. and and tell us um how he dealt and what's what to do if you're in a similar situation and the lessons that come out of it. So just just to read that advice and to hear first person from him um, how to go, how he went from there when he was finally safe. And then also what he went through each step of the way was it was very interesting and 
inspiring to listen to um, the way he got through all of that. So yeah, if you would like to read more about this article, you can check um, the famous climbing accidents article in the description, or you can also um, no one none of the climbers in this experience ever wrote a book about this expedition. Reading this, I'm thinking about making a movie about it. <laughs> um, you can read some good accounts about it in American. Oh, can you bring it back? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. You can read about it in um, American Alpine Journal um, or High Drama by Hamish McKines and also Himalayan Climber by Doug Scout, um, who is the guy who broke both of his legs in this article. But yeah. Um, but yeah, otherwise, thank you guys so much for watching Craghouse. I know today was a little bit of a shorter episode, especially loaded with a lot of content in the beginning. Um, but we just, you know, we wanted to get something done before spring break and just generally like have a good time. We like, we like getting together and, and getting this podcast together and, you know, just keeping it regular. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We talked about, um, we talked about Spirpinese Fun Fact, which was where we would time travel. We talked about climbing news. We talked about many, um, Ukrainian mountaineers and how they, um, use their skills to, um, you know help the efforts in the war against uh russia we talked about our climbing accident series which is covering the accident of the ogre happening on july 13th 1977 otherwise so have a risk managed spring break all right <laughs> carolina no it's okay i forgive you no i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah have a risk managed spring break <laughs> yeah so here i am putting that into action but all right have an amazing day, guys. Thanks for listening, and rock on. Bye! <laughs>